Hello, friends. This is Christian Kuhn. I'm the lead pastor of Urban Village Church, and this is a special podcast that we're putting out uh, this week. This is not a sermon per se, but instead it's a conversation that I had in connection with our sermon series on Methodism and John Wesley. This is a conversation I had with Dr. Jonathan Dean, who is at one point the theologian in residence at Urban Village. Now he is back in his home land of uh, England, living in Birmingham. He works for the Queen's Foundation for Ecumenical Theological Education, and his job title is uh, the Director for Center for Continuing Ministerial Development, and he's on faculty there as well. Uh, Jonathan has uh, written a book uh, about the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, called A Heart Strangely Warmed, and anytime I have a question about Wesley, I go to Jonathan, and so we thought it would be a good idea to have uh, a chat together. He happened to be in town a couple weeks ago, and so uh, this is a recording of that. Um, also, just to let you know, as we were recording this, we also had a Facebook Live going on at the same time. So there are a couple instances where we realized that the Facebook Live had uh, cut out or f- froze or something happened. So there is a little bit of a lag as we, or as I, tried to figure out how to re-record on Facebook Live. But other than that, I think it was a really good conversation. Jonathan, uh, for those who know him, uh, not surprisingly, has some really uh, wise and helpful things for us today for people who are interested in Methodism or who call themselves Methodists uh, and how Wesley can be applicable to church in the 21st century. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, so if you could first, before we kind of start asking some questions, and then if, if anyone is watching live too, feel free to share any questions, and we'll uh, see if uh, Jonathan is uh, willing to take a, a stab at some of these questions too. Um, so you and uh, Trey Hall, the other <clears throat> co-founder of Urban Village, left us uh, end of 2015 to uh, mm. to Birmingham. So tell us about what, uh, remind some folks uh, what, led you to Birmingham and what you're doing now? Uh, I was, so I was, uh, after a period of uh, kind of considerable discernment, I was offered a job at a a seminary in Birmingham, the Queen's Foundation, Um, and I am on faculty at the Queen's Foundation. Um, It's um, an ecumenical seminary, so it's um, a place where uh, Episcopalians, Anglicans, uh, and Methodists, and actually increasingly Pentecostal students uh, trained for ministry, both ordained and lay. Um, and so I'm on, the, on faculty there, and I have a particular responsibility. I direct a, um, a thing which is which called the Center for Continuing Ministerial Development. But basically what that means is um, overseeing courses of studies to help those who are new in ministry, who are just recently out of seminary, uh, to continue to be formed theologically um, and, and for their ministry and context. Uh, but also resourcing people who've been in ministry a while who are kind of wanting, wanting to tap into some of what we can offer uh, in terms of like, continuing study. So those are the things that, that I'm responsible for, basically for the whole, for the whole of, of Britain. Yeah. I mean, we have students who come from all over Britain. Good. So, yeah. Well, Jonathan and Trey are back in Chicago for a brief amount of time, uh, so we're really grateful to be able to... Uh, take advantage of his presence with us to, to ask some questions about, uh, again, about Wesley and about Methodism. So I told Jonathan before, we're not going to, for those who don't know who John Wesley is, I'm going to uh, ask you to use your search engine to do the background on that. I'm not going to ask Jonathan to give us a recap of who Wesley is. But I am interested in this uh, 18th century 
church leader who still seems to be very relevant and bring about lots of different opinions mm-hmm. in the 21st century. And so I'm wondering if you could start off by sharing a little bit uh, your own perspective on why why is Wesley still relevant and why do people still feel such a connection to him even though he's been gone now for three centuries? Mm. Mm. Thanks. Um, I mean, I think I'd want to start by saying that it's it's something uh, that we have to be a little bit careful about in the sense of, I mean, I'm a historian and, and one of the things I love about being a historian is finding those places where the past seems to kind of resonate with the present and speak into what we do. Um, I, I, but I also think it's really important to be mindful of the ways in which the context that we're in now are really different mm-hmm. from ones um, in any previous period of history. Having said also, having sounded that note of caution, I think one of the reasons Wesley has a kind of enduring appeal to Christians of all types and kinds, um, and one of the reasons why I think Wesley was um, uh, so influential, not just in his own day, but subsequently, is, is perhaps, for me anyway, in large measure, because of his capacity to hold together things which in the Christian faith we have often said are sort of binary opposites. Mm. Um, so so uh, hold them and hold them together in a way that was creative and in a way that was dynamic in the life of the church and in a way that sort of liberated all God's people in, in their discipleship and, and wasn't just about, you know, the clergy of which he was a member. Um, so, you know, he, would hold, he held together um, what we might think of today as a kind of contemplative approach to Christianity with a deep passion that unless the Christian faith is lived out in the, in the lives and in the realities of the, modern, of the world we live in, um, then, then it's useless. You know? So a sort of a combination of both um, contemplation and a passion about justice mm. and mending the world. Um, uh, he, he cut through some of the sort of theological debates that still existed after the Reformation around whether faith is primarily primarily something about what you believe or about something that you do, uh, by saying, well, it's of course about both, and mm-hmm. you can't you can't have one without the other. Um, so, so his kind of his capacity to kind of hold things together is important, I think. Another thing that I think is really compelling about Wesley, and we might get back to some of these questions later, is you know his his ability, which which wasn't his own and it it was something that he learned from others to do his ability to discern um you know when it was time for the church to move on when it was time for tried and tested kind of methods or rules um to to be recast or renewed so that so that the mission of the church um which he took to be the primary and most important thing could could flourish and could grow so there's that I think also, and this is in no particular order, there's also an emphasis in in Wesley's ministry that seems to me compelling today about the ministry of the whole people of God. Mm. And I've mentioned this already, but, you know, that the the mission of the church isn't simply about what clergy do or decide. It's it's about the gifts that God has given to all God's people. Um, And so some of the stuff that Wesley did to encourage, particularly the people he called his extraordinary messengers, his lay preachers, um... I think still resonates for us in terms of how we, how we, you know, practice ministry in a way that isn't that isn't simply about the gifts of a few, but is about liberating all God's children into ministry and mission. Mm. Um, so, so I mean, a number of things really, and probably we'll think of more as we go along. But um, but those are the things that sort of come to the front of my mind. I guess. Yeah. Mm. What it, 
I'm curious as to what you think for his legacy today, and there are people on all kinds of the aisle, uh, both sides of the or theological aisle, who will claim him saying Wesley would believe this, particularly if it lines up with what, what they believe. Uh, and I don't know if that happened near the end of Wesley's life himself, like people were beginning to say, this is truly Wesleyan and what's not. And so I don't know if he touched on that at all, and if you sense how he would respond to that today for people who are claiming this is true Wesleyan, uh, truly Wesleyan, um, or do we just don't have enough information for him to, from him to, to make that judgment? I mean, I think we have tons of tons of information. Uh, he was uh, quite um, assiduous about, you know, making sure that his journals and his letters and other writings were published. So we have we have tons tons to go on. And actually, that's one of the reasons why those who study Wesley can can kind of, I think, draw on different parts mm. of his output to justify a particular approach. Yeah. And I think it's also true to say, and this is something again that I admire about him, uh, that his views did change over time. And one of the things that one of the things that struck me a few years ago when I was when I was putting together the, the book you, you mentioned was to note how sort of how well he aged really and how as he as he got older he softened his views about some things whilst kind of becoming more committed to some some others um, uh, and so it can be quite difficult I think sometimes to you know it's about where you where you where you look and where you where you kind of pinpoint things um, so, I mean, I think there are, there are some things which it's important to remember, uh, in term, particularly in terms of perhaps some contemporary debates. And one of those would be um, his increasing emphasis on what he would call Catholicity, on the idea of um, on, on the idea of, of working together uh, in, mm. in in the mission of God and in the mission of the church and in encouraging the discipleship of all God's people n across differences. So. You know the con the contemporary church is driven is you know dri divided and driven apart by all kinds of different issues and problems, um, and I think one of the things I draw from Wesley increasingly is about his uh, I think as he got older in sort of increasingly passionate plea that Christians keep the main thing the main thing mm -hmm. that, you know we work together we can work together on all kinds of issues without having to agree on every little point of practice and and, and doctrine even. Um, and so to use a word that you used earlier in a different context, you know, he, was, he would often say, you know, we have different opinions about things, but that doesn't stop us being Christians together mm. and discerning what God primarily wants us to do for the, for the good of the world we live in. Um, and he practiced what he preached in that regard, at least, and was able to, to draw together um, a really broad kind of constituency of people around him who were committed to the work of God in their generation um, uh, in a way that transcended their own kind of particular beliefs on the important issues of the day. That also seems to me, it speaks to his own, that I, I sometimes forget, and I'm always so impressed with how widely read he was, that he drew, if I remember correctly, from many traditions to kind of, for his own, I mean, yeah. he was obviously profoundly Anglican, but drew from many different traditions for his own edification uh, and formation. Is that, is that true? That's true, and yeah. I think one of the advantages of being Anglican, being a, a member of the Church of England immediately after the Reformation, was that, was that the Church of England was and still is itself a kind of strange hybrid of mm. different emphases and mm. approaches out of the Reformation. And 
there again, you can, if you're an Anglican, you can always pick and choose which bit of your own heritage, I think, <laughs> you, you, you want to emphasize. Um, I think Methodists are very much still kind of members of that, of that yeah. sort of family of the church, and I think it shows in our DNA in all kinds of ways. But yeah, um, Wesley's influences were really diverse. I mean, he got kind of bits of, bits of um, mysticism from his youth. He got bits of uh, quite sort of strong evangelical, as, as to use the, the kind of proper Protestant word from the 16th century, quite strong evangelical emphasis from his from his from his inheritance from the Church of England that was encouraged in him, instilled in him by his father, who was also uh, clergy. Uh, he drew strongly on the, the writings of the early church uh, theologians, and published um, a whole series of of their, those writings. Made them available in a thing called the Christian Library because he thought the Methodists. Ought to know there are, you know, mm. ought to know these treasures of the Christian theological tradition. Uh, he was really influenced by a group of people called the Moravians, who were kind of um, sort of Lutheran Pietist type folks who who had a very experiential kind of approach to Christian faith. Uh, he had emphases about the way he worked that led many people to accuse him of being a sort of closet Roman Catholic. Mm. And yet he found a way to hold those things together often, I think, that was really life-giving hmm. and not just a fudge. And he also was, at his best, able to work with people whose views were really different than his, hmm. um, where, they, where they had common cause. Yeah, which seems to be uh, in short supply these days. Indeed. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, there's been many articles, certainly for those of us who live in the States, about the decline of uh, people attending church, and it's even more so in England and in Europe. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about putting yourself in Wesley's shoes, how he would respond to the state of the church, the state of Christianity today in both Europe and in the United States and the decline of its impact, seemingly Im seeming impact on society. Yeah, I mean, uh, th that feels to me like one of the places where there is a direct sort of resonance in some ways. We have to be careful, as I said earlier about it, but that there is a kind of, I think, a link there. I mean, Wesley felt that the Church of England in his day um, to a large degree anyway, had lost touch mm. with the people around it. And remember, this is a parochial system. So the parish is supposed to serve and be there for the people who live within the parish. Um, this is an age before, you know, um, before uh, recognizing that people might choose between a number of different options. And Wesley, one of Wesley's great uh, convictions was that particularly uh, in, its, in its ministry alongside and mission to the working poor, the Church of England was just failing miserably mm. in its task. Um, that was one of his convictions. And I think just generally feeling that the church uh, wasn't connecting with the needs and the, and the fears and the hopes and the aspirations and the quest for meaning of the people it was meant to serve. Um, and, you know, characteristically, that's what, that's what led him, although it went against every sensibility he had, at least at that point in his life, that's what led him in 1939, it's 1739, to start preaching in the open airs, to, uh, to go directly to where people were, to take the message of the gospel, you know, straight, straight to people in their own, uh, in their own neighborhoods. Uh, and, and it meant he was banned and barred from many parish churches because it broke the rules. Um, and although he hated doing it, he, he kind of didn't, didn't care because he, he felt that it was, it was important to go straight to where people were and answer the questions they had. And it seems to me, I mean, you're right to say that in Britain, uh, church attendance is now perhaps even lower than it is here, it certainly is. But it seems to me, 
um, that we're learning more and more that that's not because people don't have questions about mm. spiritual life, about the, the purpose of life, about what, what brings meaning to human existence. Tons of those questions. They just don't automatically and instinctively think um, that the church has anything to say to them. Sorry. That's okay. Right. Sorry about that. We're gonna come back. If we froze before, um, and I, so I don't, we were talking about um, the state of the church today in both the states and the, in England. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add to what you were saying, or uh, I mean, I think that where I ended is probably where I meant okay. to end. Really, okay. Just that kind, that kind of the the, pre, the the high priority that I think Wesley had that in our own way and for our own time that will look really different. We need to have which is around beginning with where people are and the questions they actually have, rather than the assumption that, uh, you know, we're established churches, people know about us, they will, they will just come. Yeah. Because that's clearly not going to happen. One person had, before it went out, had asked, uh, I think, sometime, I think the, the question was, do Methodists sometimes equate Wesley with God, was the question. Mm. Uh, and sometimes I've also seen that in other conversations, like, are we elevating Wesley too much? Uh, and do you th do you do you see that sometimes, and is there a danger of that? I do see it, and I do think there's a danger of it. Um, uh, Wesley Olatry, as somebody <laughs> described it. I mean, it's hard, isn't it? I think it's hard for all religious movements that owe their sense of who and what they are to a particular founder and to a particular vision from that founder. It's hard to avoid sometimes, and I think other denominations and other religious groups, you know, um, the se the same danger exists. Uh, one of the things that felt really important to me, um, as I think it felt important to Wesley himself, particularly towards the end of his life, um, w was to make sure that I was clear about his faults. And you mm -hmm. know, he, he wasn't, wasn't a perfect human being. Uh, he preached perfection, but never claimed it for himself, mm. uh, which is probably just as well. Um, you know, there's lots about Wesley that, uh, that one could criticize. I think uh, he would have been a very, very difficult person to be around. But there is, I think, also a genius about his uh, vision of the Christian faith, his understanding of the Christian faith, the stuff I was talking er about earlier in terms of how he held together things that the church has often done a very bad job of holding together, um, th that we can still draw uh, strength from and insight from and in, you know, inspiration from in our mission today. Uh, and I think as Methodists also rediscover their DNA as Methodists, and that's been happening for the last you know, 50 years in a really encouraging, intentional way, I think the, the results of that are, of, are obvious. You know, mm. we, do have, uh, we do have theological gifts to offer the, the church as a whole, to share in, you know, in our relationships with others, uh, with other Christians and, and, and with those beyond the life of the church. And so being kind of aware of some of that does seem to me to be really important uh, without ever forgetting that it is God who ultimately, of course, you know, calls all of us into this, whether we're Methodist or not. And um, so, so I, yeah, I, I can recognize the danger. Yeah. yeah. You use the word uh, genius, and I, I think I'm remembering from your book, too, in, in noting, and I've heard others say that Wesley was not necessarily a systematic theologian, but his, part of his genius was in creating systems for people to really truly live out their faith. Right. And today, in some Christian circles and in sometimes in our context, anything dealing with 
a system or hierarchy can be viewed with some suspicion. And so I'm wondering if um, you could talk a little bit about the genius of the systems that Wesley created, and is there a benefit sometimes to those systems or to uh, what one might see as, as hierarchical? Mm. Well, this might be one of those occasions where uh, it's better to do what Wesley says rather than what he did, um, <laughs> because because I think in his own in, in his own uh, you know holding together of the Methodist family, um, his own practice looked extremely hierarchical. Okay, uh, at least you know you were in connection if you were a preacher with Mr. Wesley himself, and not necessarily with the conference uh, that he that he that he created of the preachers. Um, so he acted quite dictatorially in some ways. And yet, on the other hand, we should also remember that at the heart of the Methodist way of being Christian, at least in Wesley's day, as he devised it, it wasn't his doing, but he did it in a particular way, was the class meeting and the society, uh, which was a place of radical Christian accountability, mm. a place where um, you know, Christians were, Methodists were expected to come and be open and honest and accountable with one another about their own discipleship about their own prayer life, um, about their own uh, use of what Wesley called the means of grace, their own efforts to kind of mature and grow in their faith, and their own practice of their faith too in, in terms of um, what he called works of mercy and works of piety. You know, how are you, how are you working as a Christian to, to make the life of the world better? How are you working mm. as a Christian to let God's love be shown in your life? Um, uh, class meetings were expected to be places where there was a real kind of rigorous openness about that kind of stuff um, and a place where where hierarchies were, were abolished in that mm. sense so that mm. Christians could just simply you know uh, encourage and where necessary sort of um, uh, perhaps even mildly criticize one another or not so mildly if it was mr. Wesley uh, so so that so that you know we there was an enabling of one another's growth so in some elements like that I think there's a there is a there is a kind of a, a part of being Methodist which which in, in the 18th century at least was radically unhierarchical. Um, Wesley himself, I'm not sure if I should say this as I sit in the conference office, um, but <laughs> Wesley himself was kind of pretty pretty angry about some of the developments that took place in, in, the, in the US mm. after the Revolutionary War, uh, where the people he had sent and commissioned himself to take charge of the work, Asbury and Coke, um, made themselves bishops. Um, uh, Wesley was pretty angry about that because he didn't want to, at least at that level, be creating the kinds of hierarchies which he thought had ill-served the Church of England. Um, one, of his, one of his frustrations with the Church of England, which he loved and adored in so many ways, was, was the kind of, the way in which, as he, as he saw it, um, a, you know, a, a, a bishop who wasn't missionally minded, a bishop who wasn't prepared mm. to kind of engage in, in the urgency of the church's tasks and, and encourage and enable others to do that could get in the way of so much happening that was good. Mm. Um, and of course, one of Wesley's own, um, one of the consequences of his own behavior was that he had lots of bishops quite angry with him <laughs> um, because of his rather you know, high-handed way of doing their job for them. Um, so, so he was quite resistant on, on the one hand to those kinds of hierarchies and it certainly encouraged a very non-hierarchical way of being Christian. And some of his writings to um, wealthy Methodists mm. about about what he took to be, um, we're on. Is it still? Are we okay? What he took to be. Um, I keep on doing this. I guess. 
Do you remember where you started off? Yeah, I can pick it up if you want. All right, we're back. So what I was just talking about was um, in terms of hierarchies. Uh, there's lots in Wesley's writings about his, his early sense. And here's another resonance with some recent theology. Wesley, I, I think, in some ways echoed so much that we're now used to hearing out of the liberation theology mm. kind of movements. And it, lots of Wesley's uh, current scholars have noticed this, people like Elsa Tamez and um, Ted Jennings and um, Doug Meeks and others, that there is this resonance. Um, uh, Wesley passionately thought that God did have a preferential option for the poor. He also thought he had had some of his most dynamic experiences of the life of God among the poor. Mm. Uh, and he talked about that to people in a way that, that feels true to me and not, and not patronizing or, or in any sense kind of superficial. So he would, he would write to kind of wealthy, well-to-do Methodists who prided themselves on their, on their you know, credentials as Christians and say, you know, you won't encounter God fully and properly until you, you are open to going and being among the poor. Mm. Um, and among the poor, you will find wisdom and insight and an experience of the kingdom of God that, that you won't find anywhere else. And so, you know, he, he would encourage... There's one, there's one little bit of correspondence with a woman called Miss March, which I really like, where he sort of says to her, you know, stop trying to be a gentlewoman. You've got to roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty. Mm. Uh, and, and until you do... Uh, you know, you won't mature in your Christian life. Um, and so, I mean, in those kinds of ways, too, I think there is, uh, there is kind of a refreshing sort of lack of, uh, lack of hierarchy yeah. uh, in Wesley. Yeah. So play that differently. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, talk to you a little bit about the, the future of the United Methodist Church. Uh, Jonathan is a part of the British Methodist Church, and I think some folks don't know that there's a difference. Uh, and so, uh, of course, there's a big meeting next February uh, happening. M much of the future of our denomination will certainly be talked about, particularly around the issue of our, our LGBT United Methodists and their role and presence in the church. So I'm wondering, and you can put your uh, Wesleyan lens on or, and, pro and also speak from your Jonathan Dean lens about your own thoughts uh, about what may or may not take place. Mm -hmm. And I know you're not... F you, because you're not fully a part of it. You have done reading, as we noted or talked before, we started recording. Um, so I'm just generally going to, what are your own thoughts about what may or may not happen uh, after next February and how that might be related to the, the movement of what John Wesley had hoped would be the, the sharing of the gospel in the world? Mm. I I'm suppose I want to be careful not to sort of make any prognostications about right. what may or may not happen next year because uh, there are others who can speak to that much better than me. We've obviously, we're, 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 we have been and are in British Methodism, you know, having similar kinds of conversations. They're in a bit of a different place in British Methodism right now than they are in the UMC for all kinds of reasons. Um, one of the things that I think that process has shown us at its best, uh, and I was just at the British Methodist Conference a couple of weeks ago where we, we had some conversations about this, and they were good conversations for the, for the most part. And I think one of the things that we... Uh, that we can model at our best as Methodists is what I was talking about earlier in terms of, you know, we can disagree and still be Christians. There's something about the particular issue of, of human sexuality that seems to have been particularly divisive mm. for us, isn't there? And something that seems to have been particularly, well, it seems to have been, is particularly painful 
um, and difficult about it. Um, I can remember having conversations with colleagues years ago who pointed out that we've, we've had some difficult conversations in the past as Methodists, as Christians, um, about issues from, you know, um, pacifism to, you know, I don't know, Sunday, Sunday shop opening, yeah. but never, never thought that it was necessary to kind of deny others a place in the church based on, based on our disagreements about those things. I think, so I, I really want to try and be very careful about not proof texting Wesley or saying, well, it's clear where Wesley would be because he was a man of the 18th century and not right. a man of the 21st. And I want to be really clear about that. But uh, I do, I think I do struggle for me personally, as Jonathan, it's obviously um, a sort of a clear, clear instance of, you know, an area of our life together where we have to be, where we have to be really open to the experience of our sisters and brothers in Christ, particularly LGBT sisters and brothers in Christ, of course, of whom I'm one, um, about about their experience of God, um, and so that feels to me like a really important part of part of it. But uh, you know, more dispassionately, it seems to me uh, the perfect example for myself, others will disagree with me, um, of the kind of area where Wesley would say, you know, though we cannot think alike, surely we can love alike, mm. uh, which was a phrase he used in his um, sermon, The Catholic Spirit, where he wrote about exactly this kind of thing. We may not have the same mind about every issue, um, but if we can acknowledge one another as children of God, we ought to be able to find a way to work together and hold together. Mm -hmm. And I realize that it's much more complicated than that in terms of some of the ways we work it out. But I do think that if we can hang on to that basic orientation towards it all, um, we might be in something of a better place um, than we often seem to find ourselves in right now. Mm -hmm. So that may not be very helpful, but um, in, in terms of what's going to happen next year, um, I don't know what to say except you know, we'll watch and pray. Yeah. But, uh, can I ask for you, as uh, because you have your, your feet in both worlds, um, in thinking about the future of the Methodist Church and yourself as a as a gay Christian, uh, how much does that really um, tear at you to kind of to to have feet in both of those worlds and to see the fighting and the many conversations about human sexuality? Uh, I'm just curious about your own experience of that and how you uh, how you wrestle with it and come to grips with it. Yeah, um, not always very well. I think uh. is the answer to the question. I mean, it. it it's a strange experience, I think, when you've grown up in the church, as I've done, as you know, many, many others have done, and constantly found yourself you know, affirmed in the life of the church mm. and your gifts encouraged, all of a sudden then to find that actually there's this one thing about you that, that others find less, mm. less acceptable to their sense of you know, what, what makes for a Christian minister. So you know, as, a, a, as a teenager growing up, I had a clear sense about myself that the only possible thing I could do with my life was to offer for ordination. It was the only thing, apart from, apart from a brief childhood desire to be a, a physician, a doctor, which, which soon went out the window when I realized I didn't really enjoy the sight of blood. Um, <laughs> it was the one thing I ever knew what to do with my life, you know, and felt very clearly called by God to mm. that. So kind of trying to hold that sense, that sort of deep-rooted sense of vocation alongside an equally clear sense you know that I'm gay, is um, is is often a difficult thing when you and, and and so I think, you know the ways in which, you know the church has sort of colluded with, um, uh, the you know the need therefore to sort of just be closeted and not to be open and honest about yourself, and, and not even to encourage an honest conversation I think is enormously harmful, enormously damaging, and it's, 
I think, um, so that's, that's a very personal experience. I think the more that one looks at the world around and sees the ways in which society is in a very different place, mm. uh, the dissonance becomes between that and much of the life of the church becomes greater and I think more, more painful in, yeah. in, in some ways. Um, so, so, so yeah, it's kind of, it, there's some disorientation and some, obviously some hurt and some, and some sort of inability fully to understand actually sometimes why, why this one thing about me mm. sometimes for some people um, so, sort of, uh, what's the word, sort of cancels out all the others. Right. So the church is always affirmed, right. you know, yeah. in me. Yeah. So, um, so I think, I, 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 yeah. Oh, thank you for yeah. sharing. Yeah, thank yeah. you for sharing that. That's okay. Um, I want to end on, uh, and you may have already, you may reiterate what you've already said, but I'm curious. We had somebody who wondered, what is a Wesleyan teaching that is most relevant for us today uh, in the church? Um, and I'm sure there are many answers you could give, but what might be one or two that you think would be a particular word for the church in 2018? Yeah. One thing I haven't mentioned, um, so I'll, I'll mention two if that's okay. Sure. One, one, one thing I haven't mentioned was Wesley's particular kind of placing of himself in the theological debates of his own day, which in some ways may feel less relevant now, but actually I think also relates to what we were just talking about, which was his absolute insistence that if, if God is a God of love, which fervently, obviously, he believed God is, then God's love is for, for all that God has made mm. and, not, and not simply for a few. And in, obviously in, in Wesley's own day, there were particular debates about predestination and election and how that works. Wesley always firmly insisted that the love of God was for all creation mm. and certainly for all humanity. Um, and if it wasn't, then God wasn't a God worthy of a name. So that was one kind of, one kind of key cornerstone, really, of his, of his thought and of his action. Um, because believing that God's love is for all, believing that all are made in the image of God and therefore loved and given dignity by the God who made them um, has an obvious you know, effect upon the way you do ministry as a Christian um, and the way you articulate what it means to be a Christian, which is much more about inviting people into the riches and the wonder of knowing yourself loved and graced by a God of infinite love and grace, which is, which is a far more, to my mind, a far more attractive, um, invitational, attractive mm. way of thinking about what Christian faith is all about. How do you respond to this extraordinary mm. and you know, infinite source of divine love um, than, than, than what we have often made Christianity, which is kind of like a, you know, a ledger system of who's in and who's out mm -hmm. and sort of almost threatening people with hell to, to get them there. Mm -hmm. So that's the orientation, I think, that, that, that the contemporary church needs to rediscover and keep on rediscovering because I think it's what fueled the, the revival around, around Wesley and the early mm. Methodists. And bizarrely, one of the people, one of the best Methodists I think in the world today is actually Pope Francis, who in mm. so much of what he says and does um, exemplifies, I think for me anyway, what living the Christian faith in that kind of way might look like. So mm. Francis is always talking about you know, the fundamentals of God is a God. God's name is mercy. Mm. Ch Charles Wesley said, you know, God's nature and God's name is love. Uh, Pope Francis talks about God's name being mercy. Mm. I think they're actually very similar kinds of things. And the way Pope Francis kind of tries to model the sort of indiscriminate nature of God's love by, 
you know, washing the feet of asylum seekers and embracing people who are on the margins and talking in ways that make the hierarchy around him very uncomfortable um, seem to me to be, you know, to be really sort of good models for us mm -hmm. of thinking about what that might mean, lest we get too narrow in our Wesleyan denominationalism. Um, and another thing that Pope Francis said that I love um, is that he, he talks about how he, in his vision for the church, he says the church is like a field hospital amidst, you know, the battlefield of the world, yeah. so many wounded people around us. The church is a place to which people should feel they can come and receive healing mm. um, and, and sort of be bound up in a sense. Um, I think that's a great Wesleyan image, actually, <laughs> of the church as well. And it's intriguing to me that Pope Francis just published um, his latest exhortation, which is on the call to holiness. And it's striking to mm. me how much of that language, mm. the language he uses, is really Wesleyan yeah. language. Um, so, so I'm rather than so I'm not too narrow and you know all about Wesley. I'd say there's a lot in what Pope Francis is saying and doing that echoes for me yeah. much of the reasons why Wesley um, was such a force for good uh, in the Church of his day. So I think there's some sort of clear clear resonances. I there. love that for us to be able to see how Wesley has lived out. Let us look at the Pope as one yeah, example. Well, <laughs> not, again, not everyone will agree with me. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, I think it's a pretty powerful witness. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, I think uh, that about does it for, for my questions. Anything else you wanted to, to add? Um, I think uh, Darius had asked a question about um, how lay people can play a part in this. And from, I think, kind of what we mentioned earlier, certainly Wesley was very dependent on laity and their gifts and graces uh, in, in, in being lived out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the Wesley, the, the evangelical revival the Methodist bit of it, especially in the 18th century, was absolutely um, a revival of and and for and led by uh, unordained people. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously Wesley was a priest in the Church of England, and some of those around him were. Um, but his, as he called them, as I said earlier, his extraordinary messengers, his lay preachers, were the were the were the you know the, the people on whom on whose ministry the whole revival was built. Now, obviously, once Methodism separated from the Church of England, it had its own questions to then answer about, um, about ordained ministry and its place. And for Wesley, that was predominantly a matter of making sure that you know, there was order in the life of the church in terms of sacraments and so on. Um, and, and, and some, and, but he, he, he never believed and never said that leadership in the life of the church was solely uh, the preserve of ordained people. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a principle that he lived and died by. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think that about does it. Uh, friends on Facebook, thank you for watching. We had some fits and starts, so you may go back and, and see some of the others. We'll also, we've been recording this for our podcast, so we'll make sure that all of the conversation will go up on podcast and so you get a chance to, uh, to listen to all of it. Um, if any of you are ever interested in reading, um, if the thought of going through all of Wesley's writings is too daunting, uh, I highly recommend Heart Strangely Warmed. Jonathan did a wonderful job of taking excerpts of some of his uh, sermons, letters, uh, and then along with that, Jonathan is a wonderful writer, also added his own thoughts and reflections before many of these writings. It's, it's a, in a way, it's a, Jonathan is a wonderful guide through Wesley, and so I highly recommend that book. Uh, and um, uh, thank you, Jonathan, for taking time uh, today. Honor, no thank you. Yeah, fun. absolutely. Thanks, friends, for being a part of this uh, video today. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my life.
thou my 